Why did the twelve disciples have so many wrong assumptions about Jesus' mission? How did the wise men know that the star above Bethlehem meant the Messiah was there? And speaking of those wise men, why did they bring myrrh to the baby Jesus? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. As you're driving down the road, you're going to notice a lot of different types of signs. Some signs are instructional, like stop or yield. They're telling you something to do. Other signs are informational, They're communicating some kind of relevant information to you. They might say the name of the road you're on, or what the street up ahead is called. And then you have the invitational signs. They say things like, you are now entering the judgment-free zone, or welcome to Jurassic Park. And then you also have warning signs, the signs that try to caution you that there is some kind of danger or impending doom. They'll say, the road is out ahead, or abandon all hope, ye who enter here or welcome to California. In the Bible, God would use particular things, called signs, to direct people to spiritual truth. For example, the miracles of Jesus were often called signs because they authenticated his deity. In other words, they proved that he was God. Another type of sign in the scripture is prophecy, the foretelling of future events, telling us about things that have not yet happened, the things yet to come. If you remember episode 4, Bible Prophecy Starter Pack, we discussed how only God knows the future. So to be able to tell the future with perfect accuracy is an action so powerful, so supernatural, the devil can't even duplicate it. Only God can. Now, the job of a prophet is to be a mouthpiece for God, so sometimes that will actually include the foretelling of future events. Some people are surprised to hear that Not all prophecies are given the same way. Some are clear and direct. Other times, it's so vague or obscured, you can't even recognize the prophecy until after it was fulfilled. Sometimes you'll see a cluster of prophecies that all sound related, but it will turn out that some have already been fulfilled, while others are yet to come. So, how should we talk about Bible prophecy? How do we categorize different prophecies in Scripture? That's exactly what we're going to talk about on today's episode. I'm going to go through seven different types of prophecy that are present in Scripture. I'll go ahead and tell you there are probably more than seven different categories of prophecy in the Bible, but I'm only going to look at seven today, and um, actually I'm even going to split this up into two parts. We'll do some today, and the next part should drop tomorrow. The reason I've selected these seven is because they are seven prophecies that found fulfillment in the Christmas story. And so right now it is the Christmas time of year, unless you're listening to this, you know, years down the road or something, if you went back and found this episode. Um, But right now, as I'm releasing it, it's Christmas time. All these prophecies are found in the Christmas story. And so we're looking specifically at chapters one and two of the book of Matthew today. As I was combing through this section of the Bible, as I often do at this time of year, I just noticed that there's a lot of Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled 
in the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth. Matthew himself makes specific note of this by quoting a lot of Old Testament verses throughout the account, and he commonly does this in his book, but there are five direct references to the Old Testament that are real easy to pick out in these chapters. And then as I investigated again even more carefully, I identified a couple other prophecies tucked away. They're a bit hidden, but we came up with seven. So we're going to look at seven for today in the next episode. And here's the most fascinating thing about these seven prophecies that we're going to talk about today. Each one is a different type of prophecy. This section of scripture doesn't just showcase the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. It actually showcases a variety of different ways that prophecy is given in the Bible. Now, I know that when we use the word prophecy, people get excited because they think we're going to talk about the end times. Well, I'm not talking about end times Bible prophecy today. I'm going to be talking about prophecies that have already been fulfilled. However, I think by studying the way fulfilled prophecies were given in the past, it will give us a lot of clues about how unfulfilled prophecies could come to pass in the future. So in other words, if you want to be better at predicting how all of the future end times events are going to shake out, it will help if you study how past prophecies were fulfilled. And we have a chance to do that with the birth of Jesus. So without waiting any longer, let's get into seven types of prophecy in the Christmas story. So like I said, we're going to be in Matthew 1 and 2 today. When you open up Matthew 1, verse 1, you open right up into a genealogy. There are are actually some prophetic elements even here, but I'm just going to skip past most of chapter 1 today. I want to go right into the story of the birth of Jesus. So as you read Matthew, it kind of looks at the story of Jesus' birth from Joseph's perspective. Um, Luke's account focuses more on Mary's point of view, but it's important to get Joseph's as well because his role required a little bit more faith. Um, You know, the angel appeared to Mary and told her how everything was going to go down. But for Joseph, he kind of had to take Mary at her word at first, you know, like any reasonable person. He didn't think the explanation made a whole lot of sense for um, how this woman that he had never slept with was suddenly pregnant. So more on that later. But actually, an angel had to visit Joseph as well just to get him to go ahead and marry Mary so that Christmas would be Mary. So the angel comes to Joseph in a dream, and this is what the angel says. This is Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's in verses 20 and 21 of Matthew 1, and that's a direct quote from the angel. Now, after you read this at this moment, Matthew, the gospel writer, he interrupts the historical retelling of those events, and he makes a parenthetical comment about the situation. A parenthetical comment is like whenever you make a side note, okay? Something that you might put in parentheses in a sentence. It's when you want to bring in an external detail to add some helpful context in a story. And like I said earlier, Matthew frequently does this in his gospel. So the next couple verses after that, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So what we have here is a direct fulfillment of prophecy. And that's the first type of Bible prophecy I want to talk about today. Literal fulfillment. Literal fulfillment is simply when the Bible directly says X, X is going to happen, and then X happens, exactly as the Bible said it would. Literal fulfillment. This is the most basic way we think about Bible prophecy. <laughs> it really doesn't require much explanation. Uh, you know, As you know, Mary was a virgin at the time she conceived of a son. This is one of the most basic beliefs in the story of, of Jesus among Christians. It's the virgin birth. The scripture from the Old Testament that... Um, Matthew was talking about, it's Isaiah 7, 14. Even though Matthew doesn't say Isaiah by name, he just says the prophet. But what he says is a direct quote from that chapter of Isaiah. So since we're going to go through six more types of prophecies today, I'm not going to go too deep into the context of that story in Isaiah and, and like exposit it, okay? Maybe next Christmas. But for now, I just want to mention this, uh, what, what Jesus what happened to Jesus and, and Mary, this is a literal fulfillment of those words from the Old Testament. And literal fulfillment is the easiest of all types of Bible prophecy we can talk about. Um, I was reading in my own in my Bible this morning, it was one of the Gospels, where Jesus is talking to his own disciples. He's talking about his impending death and resurrection. This was in Luke 18. And the, there were actually a few times in the Gospels that he tells the disciples straight up, What's going to happen with him, you know, with the cross? It says in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34, Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. It says, but they, meaning the disciples, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. <laughs> you know, it's kind of comical to read it in retrospect. I actually wonder if God is trying to be funny here. Jesus says, just as literally and as clearly as you possibly can, he says what is going to happen to him. And still it says the disciples just don't get it. They were confused. Like, well, what do you mean you're going to be flogged and killed and <laughs> rise again three days later? You know, they think he's speaking in code. And then when it literally does happen, the disciples don't even seem to remember this. <laughs> they just get scared and lose hope, totally forgetting that he plainly prophesied to them that he would rise again three days later. Do you remember in our, um, in our previous prophecy lesson, which was, that was episode four, that when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Well, when the literal words of Jesus make plain literal sense, you can expect that a literal fulfillment is coming. So the first type of prophecy, and perhaps the most basic, is literal fulfillment. Jesus was literally conceived within a virgin. And this is one of the most basic and important facts, really, about the story of Jesus. Like, I've never had trouble believing this to be true, personally. I don't know, maybe that's because I grew up in church all my life, so I just I just accepted it as a kid. I never really doubted it after that. But um, I will say, you know, it's since it was never hard for me to believe this, this truth in the Bible, I, I'm actually, you know, surprised how many people I've met in my life that actually do have a real problem trying to believe this. Like, I have this, 
I have this conversation with someone just about every year as a minister. I can even remember witnessing to one of my friends like several years ago before I was even in pastoral ministry. I, I was just witnessing to one of my friends. We were going over some of his hangups about Christianity. And he said to me, um, I remember what he said to me. He says, you know, the one problem I have is the virgin birth. I just can't wrap my mind around that. <laughs> and that was like his biggest issue about Christianity. So, you know, like I said, it's not hard for me to believe it, but I have met so many people who struggle with this aspect of Jesus's birth um, that like, I'm not going to make fun of anyone who struggles with it. Not, not even Christians, but if that's you, here's what I'd say. And, and it's what I said to my friend all those years ago. And it's what I say to every person I meet today who has a struggle with this doctrine. I just ask this question. Do you believe the first verse of the Bible? Okay, the first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1.1. Now, I know that Christians all have various views of how creation worked itself out. But all Christians everywhere at least believe this first verse without much problem, that God created the universe and everything in it. So, if you can believe the first verse of the Bible... You should be able to believe anything that comes after it, right? Like if God is powerful enough to create the earth and space and everything in the whole universe, God is powerful enough to interact with us within that universe in whatever way he sees fit. And that includes causing a virgin to conceive of a child. Like, I don't even see why that'd be difficult. <laughs> you know, compared to creating the entire universe, Creating a microscopic little baby doesn't seem that hard. So if you ever have trouble with the idea of a virgin birth of Jesus, I just ask, do you believe the first verse of the Bible? If you can believe that verse is true, anything else the Bible says is at least possible. Like when God created the universe, okay, the heavens and the earth, it was like he created this big box to work in. And almost everything in the Bible takes place within that box. So if God created the box and everything in the box, and if we accept that with no problem, then it, it shouldn't be that hard to accept that God can mess around with whatever he wants to within that box that he created. So that, that's how I look at it. And that makes sense to me. I hope it makes sense to you. Um, but that's enough about literal fulfillment. I just, I always have to share that story when I talk about the virgin birth. Okay, let's talk now about the next type of prophecy that you find in scripture. And this one would be, uh, it's found in Matthew 2. I call it the time gap. Okay, this is, um, this is about the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, just to give a little context here, when we read Matthew 2, the first part of it deals with the wise men and King Herod. There's kind of a whole story there that I'm not going to go too deep into today. Um, if you want, you can pause this and read the chapter if you want to. But basically, I just want to look at verse 5. It said that Herod is asking the experts in the Old Testament writings where the Messiah was going to be born. And Herod is a minor, he's kind of a minor king. Um, he's not like the kings in the Old Testament. He's just a minor king with limited power. And the Romans are kind of letting him be in charge of the Jews. And Herod is, he's a little bit nervous about a Messiah coming because he sees Jesus as a threat to his position as king. So in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, it says, They told him, 
the, the experts that he was consulting, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So that, that quotation in Matthew, it originated in the book of Micah. Micah gave a prophecy about the little town of Bethlehem. Now I'm going to briefly switch subjects a little bit. Um, if you know anything at all about Christian views of the end times, which <laughs> they can be wildly diverse, but one thing that we pretty much all agree on is that Jesus is coming again someday. Like his first coming was in the land of Israel about 2,000 years ago, okay? And we believe that he will return at some point in the future, which we refer to as the second coming of Christ. And furthermore, we also recognize that his second coming will have a different purpose than the first, okay? Because the first one, when the first coming was about Jesus dying for our sins, but the second coming will be about Jesus taking control of this world and ruling and reigning as basically the king of the world. So where we live right now, at this moment in time, is between two comings. That's why the book of Titus says that uh, we, we live between two appearings. The first appearing was the appearing of grace. That's when Jesus made our salvation possible. The second appearing is the blessed hope which is a phrase we use to mean the second coming of Christ. So you can read that in Titus, I think, chapter 2. But in the Old Testament, there were prophecies about Jesus. They called him the Messiah. There were prophecies about him dying on the cross and saving us from our sins, which obviously already happened. So that part has been fulfilled. But there were actually a lot more prophecies about him becoming the ruler of this world which hasn't happened yet. So we have a huge advantage in understanding these prophecies that the ancient Jews didn't have because they assumed, quite logically, that the Messiah only needed to come once and that when he came, he would just do everything that he was prophesied to do all at once. And that's why (laughs) the disciples, they were just constantly asking Jesus about, you know, when are you going to restore the kingdom? That they thought he was going to become king and declare Israel as the capital of the planet. And, and they thought that he was going to do all of that within his own lifetime. And that then there would be peace forevermore. And, <laughs> you know, here's something that, frankly, this really bothers me. Is that when you read Old Testament prophecy, it does sound like that's exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do. You know, there will be prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, and they are right next to prophecies about the second coming of Jesus. And, you know, it it sure sounds like it was all supposed to happen at the same time in the same coming. And so that's why I say it was, honestly, it was quite logical of the Jews who followed Jesus to assume that he would fulfill all the prophecies that first time that he came. So what we find is there's often kind of a time gap within the prophecies about the Messiah. And um, this is the second type of prophecy that we find here in the Christmas story, one of those time gap prophecies. It gives a prophecy about the first coming, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And then it gives a prophecy about the second coming. It does this all in the same breath. However, there's actually a time gap between those two events 
That's, it's just really not obvious whenever you read the verse. And frankly, just to be honest, like this is one of my least favorite things to study about Bible prophecy because you just never see the gaps, you know, until like us when you're already living in them. But if you were to just read it, you would never think there was a time gap there. Um, Like, for example, I'm going to read some verses here, and this is how they originally appeared in Micah 5. I'm just going to read a few verses from Micah 5. It's verses 2 through 4. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So as you hear, the verses constantly reference the Messiah being born, and then it says Israel will be oppressed until he's born, and then after he's born, all the Jews who have been scattered throughout the world will be drawn back to Israel, and he'll be ruler in Israel and great to the end of the earth. Well, you know, a lot of that stuff hasn't occurred yet. The part where he was born, that part's occurred. And we could say that the Jews are being gathered back to Israel right now. That would actually be true to say, you know, a lot of that going on right now is fulfillment of prophecy. But it's something that's been going on for decades. And (laughs) you certainly don't get the idea from Micah 5 that all this stuff is going to take such a long period of time to accomplish. So when I read the New Testament and how the disciples just seemed so bewildered about Jesus's intentions and questioned his decisions, I can totally sympathize with their confusion because they didn't live in they didn't live within the time gap like us. So they had no way of knowing that there even was a time gap. There's no indicator of a time gap. Um, Let me give you a couple more examples. Okay, Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. This is another popular Christmas prophecy. It says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Okay, so far, you know, hey, you hear this all the time at Christmas, right? But here is what verse 7 says. It said, right after what I just read, right after that it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So that's just the next verse after the previous one about him being born. And would you not just assume that when the child is born, <laughs> according to these verses, from that point forward, the government the government would be on his shoulder and his government and peace would be endless Um, but it, it wasn't like that, was it? He did come, but now there is at least a 2000 year gap from when he came the first time and when he's eventually going to come back and then his government and peace will be of no end. You know, it hasn't all happened yet. We see this also in Revelation. This is a New Testament prophetic book. Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So this prophetic idea of of uh, of Jesus being, when it says rod of iron, it's talking about his, his rule right there. This prophetic idea is being reiterated, repeated, even after Jesus has already come and gone in the first appearing. Okay? Because as we know, 
after Jesus was born 2,000 years ago, he certainly did not rule all the nations from then on with a rod of iron. That part is still to come. So another thing that you have to keep in mind as you study Bible prophecy is the time gap that's present in a lot of them. I've heard this idea called the telescoping of Bible prophecy before. Uh, the idea of that is that it's like if you were looking at the mountains from far away through a telescope, as you're looking at them through the telescope, their peaks might have, they might appear to be close together. It might look that they're very near to each other. However, if you were to travel to those mountains and walk between them, you'd find that there were actually miles of space between those peaks. It wasn't so obvious when you looked through the telescope, but it became undeniable once you were in the gap. And that's what is said about Bible prophecy too, that the gaps aren't visible when you're peering at scripture as just the words on the page. However, once you separate the prophecies behind you from the ones still ahead of you, you realize that there's a, there's a great gap between the peaks. So the second type of Bible prophecy is the time gap prophecy. And uh, here's the third one I want to look at today. We're going to go ahead and go into our third one. So number two is time gap. Third one I want to look at today. And like, like I said, I'm already planning to not do all seven prophecies just today. Because that would make this episode like so long. <laughs> so th this is kind of a Christmas themed lesson. And I don't want to delay getting them all out. So that's why I'm going to go ahead and put out the second part of this lesson tomorrow. That's my plan. We're just going to chug ahead for now and see where we are after three or four. And then we're going to stop for today. But um, for this next one, I, I just want to back up a couple verses. Before that Bethlehem quotation that we read before, I want to back up just a little bit. Okay, because there's a prophetic element of the Christmas story that uh, I honestly, I never thought too deeply about it before. It's about the star that appeared above Bethlehem. Now, all my life, I've known about the star that appeared, you know, marking the spot where Jesus was born. And it's, it's kind of just self-explanatory. I never really thought too much about it from beyond that. But here's something I noticed this week. It says the wise men, or the magi in the Greek, okay? These were the guys who, uh, they watched the stars often. So when a new star appeared, this caught their attention. And as I was reading these chapters a little, little more carefully, a little more slowly than usual, you know, I was preparing for this lesson, Here's something that caught my attention, starting at the beginning of, of chapter 2. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. So the thing that grabbed my attention is that when the wise men saw this star appear, they immediately associated that with the king of the Jews. And they called it his star. And I'm like, how did they know that it was his star? So here's how I'm going to explain this. I want to bring two things together here. All right. The first is um, the first is the Old Testament scripture that this probably alludes to. I'm going to call this type of prophetic fulfillment, um, I'm going to call it an illusion. And this is when you see a prophecy fulfilled that was not presented as an outright prophecy in the Old Testament. But once you see it fulfilled in the New Testament, then you understand why the Old Testament said that. So in the Old Testament, Numbers 24, you see a reference made 
to the star of Bethlehem. This is the part of um, this is part of the story of Balaam. This is when he goes up on a mountain and he's told to curse Israel, but instead he blesses Israel. And, you know, they go up on a higher mountain to curse Israel, and he just keeps speaking blessings over Israel instead of curses. Well, as part of, of one of his blessings, he refers to a star that appears in Israel. This is Numbers twenty four seventeen. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So I'm going to categorize this type of prophetic fulfillment as fulfillment by illusion. Because this is such a vague prophecy in the Old Testament. I mean, even within prophecy, stars usually mean something other than literal stars. I mean, you would probably not even assume this meant a literal star when reading it. But why did the Magi associate it with the coming Messiah? Like, that's the part I could not figure out. How did they connect that Old Testament scripture with the other scriptures that were prophesying a Messiah? You know, it just didn't seem like a messianic prophecy by itself. But here's what I actually found out looking into this. Um, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there are a collection of writings found years ago that had been perfectly preserved from ancient times. Well, in those, there's an ancient text called the Damascus Document, and also another one called Testimonia. And in those documents, it says that the ancient Jews believed that Numbers 2417 referred to the appearance of their messianic deliverer. And apparently they were right, because when they saw the star appear, they correctly interpreted it as heralding the coming of Jesus. Now, I personally never would have got that out of the verse myself, but <laughs> maybe this is why they're called the wise men, because they figured out something that I didn't, okay? According to the Dead Sea Scrolls, their beliefs about this prophecy, that, you know, that it was a Messiah, um, that it was a prophecy about the Messiah, those beliefs turned out to be 100% correct. But it's just such an indirect prophecy that I can't call it literal fulfillment. And, and Matthew himself, he doesn't even give an Old Testament quotation alongside of it. So this is more of what I would call an illusion. And that's just whenever you make a reference to something that was said, uh, something that was said before, but without outright quoting it. There's many fulfilled prophecies that are actually allusions to things that were hinted at throughout the Old Testament. And if I had time, we could go through some more, but uh, this, this lesson is already long enough for today. Let's go ahead and do, let's do a fourth type of prophecy before we go, and uh, then we'll close down after that. So for the fourth one, when we're still talking about the wise men here, um, for this fourth one, I'm going to call it foreshadowing. Many of you, you know of the gifts they bring to the baby Jesus, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, because of this, we assume that uh, we assume a lot of times there were three wise men because there were three gifts, but we really don't know. I mean, there could have been two, could have been 20. It doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the point is there are three gifts given, okay? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You read that in Matthew 2, 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, why these three gifts? Well, they all signify something about Jesus. Something that uh, the wise men picked up on that, again, you and I probably would have missed. Okay, so the gold, that one probably speaks to his kingliness. The frankincense was a type of incense that was often associated with religious or priestly duties. 
So the, these gifts are kind of prophetic in that um, they imply something about Jesus's purpose, that he is our priest and king. But the myrrh, that just takes this to a whole new level. Myrrh is actually a burial ointment. You know, dead bodies, of course, they start to stink after a while. And sometimes they would place an ointment on dead bodies, you know, in old times, to try to cover up some of that smell. And that was what myrrh is. Now, this is such a weird gift to give to a newborn baby. It only makes sense as a prophetic foreshadowing of what Jesus would eventually do for us, dying for our sins. And this is the fourth type of prophetic fulfillment today. I just want to talk about foreshadowing. This is this is a literary technique that, you know, when, when you introduce something in the first act of the story that will pay off in the second or third act. And God, as the author of history, he employs this technique many times. Like he places things in the Old Testament to foreshadow something in the New Testament. And in this case, we're taking one thing from Jesus's birth to foreshadow Jesus's death. Everybody in history who has ever lived has eventually died. But this baby who was born in Bethlehem, he was born to die. His life was a mission to die. The gold symbolizes his kingship. The frankincense is a symbolism of his priesthood. And the myrrh is a symbol foreshadowing his sacrifice. And one more fun thing to note on this, uh, just because I love getting to share this with you today. But one more fun thing to note, it's Isaiah 60 verse 6. And it contains, uh, this chapter is really about the second coming of Jesus. It's talking about when Jesus is king of the world. Okay, and listen to what it says about that time. It says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Jesus, after his second coming, is continuing to receive gold and frankincense. But what's not there? It says they're not, it does not say that they're bringing him myrrh. Why? Well, obviously it's the second coming. He won't need burial ointment anymore. The second time, the second time he comes, it's not to die. But in a political and religious sense, he will still be our leader. So the golden frankincense could still apply. And I think that's really a great stopping place for today's lesson. Um, I'm not going to do a full recap today. I'm going to save that for tomorrow's lesson, and that's where we'll just recap everything that we talked about in both parts. But like I like I told you on, um, I think I mentioned this on the last program, I just had this really busy weekend last weekend. We had our church's Christmas program, and I just was not able to have a new episode available for Monday like usual. So you'll get two episodes this week, and then that'll be it for the year. We'll come back in the first week of January. We should be back in the book of Ezekiel once again. But uh, I'll just go ahead and say, um, if you're listening to this, at, you know, right after I currently put it up, then I hope you have a Merry Christmas. I hope you learned something new here today about the variety of Bible prophecies and scripture. The Bible is so rich in detail and everything is there for a purpose. And a lot of times we only see those things there in hindsight. But uh, if, if we are good enough with understanding all the ways that God used prophecy in the Old Testament, That'll really help us in correctly predicting how prophecies could be fulfilled in the future. And we gave you four pieces of information for how to do that today. Come back for our 10th episode. We'll give you three more. Thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that means anything's possible.